This episode of History Replays today, the Richmond History Podcast, is brought to you by Frame Nation. Frame Nation is in Shaco Bottom, right there in the Shaco Design District at 11 South 15th Street. They have an incredibly helpful, educated staff. If you have anything that you're trying to get framed or displayed in any kind of way, bring it down there. They'll they'll find the right price price point for you. Um, and they'll find a, a frame that will actually complement and and highlight the you know the art, the family photo. Um, diploma, whatever it is you're trying to get displayed, you know, you know they do have that, that. They have that Chris Cooley jersey that was signed. That thing was framed up really nicely. Um, I'll take one, please. Yes, thank you. Um, and go down to Frame Nation again, 11 South 15th Street. Find out more information at framenation framenation.net. Um, follow them on Facebook, Twitter at Frame Nation. Anywhere else you follow people, you should. I do. Go down to Frame Nation. This is History Replays Today, the Richmond History Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Jeff Major. On the show, I'm starting a, a, new, a new periodic series called Civil War Life in Richmond. Um, this is not becoming a Civil War history show, um, but I think it's, it's, you know, the Civil War is, you know, by far the, the most talked about, the most romanticized, uh, and the most tumultuous time in Richmond's history. So, you know, I want to take a look at, you know, not just how generals and presidents are living and but how's it and you know, normal normal human being, you know, Tom and, you know, Allison that live down on, you know, Main Street, how's how is their life affected by this? So I have a conversation with Mike Gorman. Um he's a historian at the National Park Service here in Richmond. Uh if you listen to the previous episodes, um uh, you may remember Mike Gorman was the the guest um telling us about Lincoln and Richmond. Uh, the the beginning. This is actually the beginning of that conversation. When I sat down with him, uh, I I had intended on bolstering that section of the show before I, I posted it, so I could make this a full episode because this is somewhat of a of a short episode. But I figured I'd never get enough to to make it you know encapsulate it all into to one one episode. So it's going to become this periodic series. Um, if you have not heard that episode with Lincoln and Richmond, Mike Gorman. It's awesome. Uh, you can check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, um, TuneIn, HistoryReplaysToday.org, or anywhere else you check out podcasts. Also, while you're there, uh, you know, at iTunes or Stitcher, write a review for me. That'd be fantastic. Just drop some stars in. If you don't like it, do not write a review, though. That's a, that's a, that's a good rule. Uh, but if you like it, you know, head over to iTunes. Uh, write me a review. It'd be fantastic. Also, you know, you can let me know what you think about the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, on historyreplaystoday.org. Uh, you can email me at jeffmajer, J-E-F-F-M-A-J-E-R, at historyreplaystoday.org. You can suggest guests, um, if you just something you just want to know, a, a topic you want covered. We'll do that as well. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting thing, um, you know, the, this civilian life in Richmond. Um, Richmond has a city government as it does now. It's also got the state government as it does now. And you can only kind of imagine how, you know, what would happen if you just drop the federal government right in the middle of it. And, and it's a new government. It's not even, you know, they still haven't figured out 
how to handle its own growing growing pains. Um, to, to complicate the whole thing even more, the state and the federal government, are, their legislatures are meeting in the same building here at the Capitol. Um, you know, in the city itself, you know, it's just wartime. So the city's going to grow and it's trying to deal with its own growing pains. Um, Mike's going to get into all of that. You can go out and see and engage with the city and its history and a lot of the things that we actually talk about on the Richmond History Podcast um, by going out to River City Segs. It's the premier Segway tour company in Richmond. Um, they have a number of different historical tours. Um, the River City Ride, which is just a, a riding tour. Um, if you're not sure Segway's for you, all of River City Seg's adventures start with a full training session. Um, it's the only Segway-specific training area in Virginia, and it's housed in, uh, in, in, in 1884 Firehouse, so the, the history, tour, history lesson starts right there. The February, check out River City Sags. It's going to be featuring a Black History Tour, which they're doing uh, four riders for $74. Um, that's less than 20 bucks a person. If you got a you know an individual that you can't get that that four together, it's $29.50 per person. That's that's not bad. Check out in March, we're going to be doing the Women in RVA History Tour. Uh, you can call 343-6105-804-343-6105 for more information and make reservations. You can go to rivercitysegs.com, follow River City Segs, Facebook, Twitter. So this is going to be a short conversation. Um, it's not that short. Uh, when I started doing this, I was saying half hour to hour. Uh, just the last few episodes, I've gotten an hour and a half, and I've gotten a little carried away from myself. So it's on the short side, but it's not too short. Uh, and go check out Mike's website. Mike uh, runs uh, mdgorman.com. Go check that out. It's an amazing resource of anything Civil War Richmond, newspapers, letters, photographs. If you want to do some research, it's, it's all cataloged in a great way. Just just want to go poke around. Go check that out, mdgorman.com. Definitely uh, going to get to this now. We, he, I started out actually asking about something, nothing to do with Civil War Richmond. He was telling me about beer tours that he does for, for Beer Week. And... Um, I've never been on the tour, but I'd love to, to go. So here's Mike Gorman. Like how often are you doing the beer tours? We do that once a year as part of once as part of um, uh, Richmond Beer Week, okay, which happens every November. And since we've been doing this, we've always been the um, we've been the last uh, last event in Richmond Beer Week. And it's a lot of fun because, you know, obviously my day job is talking about the Civil War and mass killing and uh, no doubt the most important era of Richmond's history, but, you know, it doesn't stop there. Sure. And you know that. Um, when we look at the, the city of Richmond, we, we tend to focus almost solely on, on those four years. And um, in a general textbook sense, I suppose that's correct, but... It goes on. It has this incredible industrial history, this incredible cultural history. Right. And part of that, of course, is is, is beer. And, you know, especially with what's happening now in the craft beer scene, what could be better sure. than, than taking a look back, not just at where we are now or how we got to where we are now, but what were they doing in the 1860s? What were they doing in the 1880s? Right. And yeah. that's that's part of the, the concept of the podcast is just to try and find out. Yeah. Still in the blanks. Yeah, something other, you know, there's more than 400 years of history here and, um, you know, ish. Yeah. Right. And there's certainly more than just four years. Right. Although, you know, I, I can tell you from 
you know, doing my website and doing what I do, that even despite the fact that we think we focus so much on those four years, we really don't. Right. You know, there's a vast amount of misinformation, ignorance, um, and lack of scholarship. Uh, and that's not me puffing myself up, but that historians have been at this since the end of the Civil War. Nobody had really gone through and been like, okay, what was happening in the most important city in the Confederacy? Right. Until recently. And I mean, since the 1960s. And that's really, that's really something. Well, I think, it, it, I mean, it seems like a, history in general, a lot of it is really just trying to get that story told that people want to get told, right? I mean, as opposed to... Hmm. That's an interesting way to look at it. Know, finding the truth. Who are those people that want to get, wanted to get told? Right. Yes, often it is. Um, that's, that's, keeps a lot of people employed, I guarantee you. Right. But, uh, you know, who tells that story, who refutes that story, who modifies that story is, is what history is all about. You know, I, I get a kick out of everybody shakes their fist at revisionist historians. Well, all history is revisionist. Right, sure. Every bit of it. Yeah. The, the day it happened, somebody was revising the way it happened to fit in the newspaper, you know. Sure. Um, so I, I, I welcome that. That's, that's what we ought to be doing. But uh, I think it's nice that, that since the roughly, I, I don't even like using the term the 1960s, but what we really mean is the late 1960s. Uh, in the early 70s, the, the, the trends in scholarship have tended to be more inclusive and in, in taking a look not just at the big picture and not just the national narrative uh, that we insist on creating for ourselves, but you know, looking at it from, shall we say, the bottom up. Right. And because of that, we've had some outstanding scholarship since then that hadn't been done before. And you look back and you scratch your head and be like, gosh, why? I mean, this is the, this is the experience that people had. And when, when people that were writing these, these lost cause narratives, for instance, uh, you know, they were writing it through the lens of having lived this event the way I'm looking at it now, or that we can look at it now. Sure. And, and it's that, that's really bizarre to me that they chose this larger narrative rather than, you know, than what they did. Only only some of the women narr- narratives uh, tend to really focus on the, the day-to-day life and what was going on. And that's you know, perhaps due to the gender constraints of the time or the, the separate spheres, if you will. I don't really know. But... Uh, you know, as far as a lot of the, the standard narrative, it, it rarely included uh, African Americans, women, uh, date crime, <laughs> right? What, what happened <laughs> daily downtown? Uh, you know, inflation of currency, you know, prices. Uh, how to stretch that budget? And that, when we look back at World War II, we, we include all that, don't we? We think about sure Rosie the Riveter and Victory Gardens and all that kind of thing. Well, why don't we do that for the Civil War? We ought to. Right, they're human beings, just yeah, like exactly. We are. And there's exactly. every day, you know, you can. The context of thinking about somebody had a, a really terrible day the day before, you know, makes their actions that day, you know, right. It's all it's all completely relevant in there. But the perfect example is is 1863, when within about a month you have uh, Stonewall Jackson's funeral, the Browns Island explosion that, that killed so many young women and girls, um, and then the Richmond bread riot. The Tredegar fire. All this is happening like bang, bang, bang. You don't think they were interrelated? Right. To say nothing of the snow that was preventing goods from getting into Richmond, I mean, you have to put all that together to understand how this happened, how that affected the populace. How, you know. And if you don't, then it's just these isolated events that seemingly have no importance. Sure. And do you feel like the newspapers at the time had the same kind of... Uh 
uh, you know, when you watch the news today, mm-hmm. um, there's a, you know, a hurricane and then there happens to be a, an earthquake in, you know, another part of the world that are completely unrelated. And then, you know, the headlines are all whatever the world is going to kill us. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like well, suddenly the sky yeah. is falling. So when you sure, get those, sure. you know, those type of events all together, does, I mean, does it spin that, the, the, the framework? I mean, are they selling news like they are now or? Yes, but differently. Um, the impression that I get reading the newspapers, which is a lot of what I do, um, and mercifully so many of them are being digitized now so I don't have to spend my time on you know, microfilm, um, they really feel like local newspapers. Like if you've ever lived in a, in a small town or smaller city, the way that those newspapers report things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this occurred opposite Joe Smith's grocery store. You know, well, I don't know where that was, but people back then, I was, oh, that's yeah, knew exactly where that was. You know? Right. And, you know, occurred across from the Texaco at you know, in near VCU. You might say that today, you know, or whatever. Um, but back then, you know, it really feels like a, a local newspaper. You knew who the editors were. You knew what their I don't like the word bias, but their political slant was. Uh, so you subscribe to the newspaper based on that. So it wasn't as uh, AP, you know, really. If you pick up the newspaper today, right, the, the whole front page, with the exception of maybe one article, would be, you know, from the AP. You know, well, back then it would have been a little different. It would have been uh, telegraphic news might have one column, and then the rest would be original content. And that is really important to the Civil War historians is, is trying to figure out, you know, okay, what is unique to this paper? What is the original content? And, and of the uh, the five Richmond newspapers, they seem to be producing an awful lot of original content. Even newspapers in, say, Charleston or um, New Orleans, certainly in the northern cities, you know, they're relying on other papers to produce content which they might copy and put in their newspaper. Uh, some of that was certainly done in the Richmond newspapers, but by and large, a lot of it is is original reporting, especially when it comes to local events, right? which is just terrific. And you, you have five different you know, takes on this. Right. And, and reading a lot of the stuff on your website as well, like some of those little snippets, it, it sounds just like a small, like, even like a neighborhood newspaper, mm-hmm. where it sounds like they're, like, which I know the reporters can't know all these people, but it sounds like they're friends. Like Miss Miss Sally Anderson from this place, you know, mm-hmm. you know right. with her red dress, and, you know, I mean, but it's Trivial sometimes. Very. Just like, you know. I think that's the wonderful part about it, is, is sometimes you look at the things that are that are given space in, in the wartime Richmond newspapers, you know, coinciding with really important events. You know, and here's uh, uh, so-and-so advertising for, you know, so many yards of calico cloth that they're right. going to be selling it. You know, it's like, not that you should stop what you're doing, and, you know, don't you realize there's a war on? Well, no, you got to... You gotta sell your cloth. You gotta, you know, women need dresses. Uh, you know, the food still needs to get on the table. You know, it's all still, it's all there. Sure. So what you're really peeking at is the apparatus of a, of a wartime city, and that that's that's really remarkable. And, and it does carry on. I mean, normal life. Yeah, carries on. You don't stop well. what you're doing. I mean, you don't. You didn't stop what you were doing on December eighth, nineteen forty-one. Uh, you 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 keep needing dinner. Right, you, you might have some different concerns. You might uh, you might wonder what's happening now. Your 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 son's going off into the army or something like that. But uh, you know, life moves on. You know, imagine yourself living in a place where 
all of a sudden not only is your life moving on, but the city is doubling in size, maybe even tripling in size. Uh, people are sending uh, their, their slaves into the city uh, for protection. They're taking jobs in factories and hospitals and all this kind of stuff. Hospitals are, are popping up. Hang on, protection of the slaves or protection mm-hmm. of, okay. Oh, very much so. If you knew you knew there was one place in, in the Confederacy that was going to be absolutely defended to the last, where is it? Right. Well, so if you're in the Tidewater region when the you know, Yankees are pushing up from Fort Monroe, you've got 100 slaves, where do you want to move them? Sure. So the place is going to be defended. Right. right. You know, they're not going to come defend your farm. Uh, so this is happening, but they still need to be fed, right? Yeah. They need they need to make money somehow uh, for their owners. All this is straining everything, not just, you know, how can I get my calico cloth? It's, you know, how can I get my food? I mean, there's so, many, so much food coming in, how does it get divided up? Uh, hospital patients, prisoners. And so the bread riots are, would you, I mean, are they more a result of just the increased population, or is it it's certainly a factor. the lack of food? Certainly. Well, that's that's a major factor. Okay. So, um, I mean, you can, I mean, you can write, and people should, and, and have at least written huge numbers of uh, uh, words about this. And, you know, it, to me, there's still, there's still not the definitive history written out there about this, but, uh, but you know, so many contributing factors to this, but it, it, it it points up that no matter what the motivation of the rioters was originally, it, it certainly morphed. Uh, it got out of control, and you know they started banging in jewelry shop doors and that kind of thing. But you know the the, the pure motivation: why are we doing this? You know, we're going to demand demand bread is is I think rather pure is, is that they can't get the the day to day needs. Yeah, and this is coinciding with the breakdown of the prisoner exchange. So prisoners who are coming into Richmond or not getting out, so that's just a continual increase in need for food for prisoners of war. And, and that's when, uh, because Lincoln, um, you know, brings in the black troops, and right, and then they right after the Emancipation Proclamation, the uh, the authorization of black troops, then the Confederates have a counter proclamation, which most people forget about. But it's uh, if you've ever seen the movie Glory, it's it's prominently featured there when when uh, Matthew Broderick is as Shaw is. He's reading to his troops this proclamation in the rain. It's very, very dramatic that the uh, the Confederates have said that uh, any black soldier taken in arms would be returned to a system a position of servitude. So basically, means if you capture you, you get turned into a slave, regardless of whether you were born free in Massachusetts. Doesn't matter. And any white officer would be summarily shot. Well, geez, you know. Okay, so the response of the North is to this barbaric or seemingly barbaric proclamation from the Confederate Congress. This is not just a bunch of idiots out there, you know, mouthing off. No, this is, this is you know, with the full voice of the Confederate government. Uh, they say, fine, if that's if that's what you're going to do, then we're, we're, never, we're not going to exchange with you anymore. Right. And so the, the, the exchange system, when it broke down, just meant that uh, as prisoners of war, white or black, came into town, they weren't leaving. So what might have been 5,000 in, in Richmond before now is... 6,000 is not decreasing, 7,000, 8,000, so on and so on. And, of course, that's bringing with it just the strain of everything. Same with hospital patients, although for different reasons. Uh, whenever you had active campaigns and men getting sick, it's increasing to the city population, the needs of uh, for food, for all manner of daily necessities. Well, what does that say about this, what's going on in the civilian world? You sure. Know, if, if, if X amount of meat used to feed everybody in Richmond, and now you've got X plus, or the need for X plus 3,000, 
and it doesn't seem to be being met, then that, that same amount of meat has to be dispersed amongst the population. And I don't I don't get the sense that a whole lot of people are getting fat in the winter of 1862-63, and certainly as it went forward. To say nothing of the fact that your dollars that you made bought increasingly less and less. Sure. And, and are there other... That's the kind of thing we just don't think about. Is there availability to other food? I oh, mean, sure. I mean, there were farmers around. I mean, like other products, I mean. Like, I mean, is there like... I mean, just because there's no food, I mean, could you go and, you know, buy a new suit or, you know, something like that? It seems like that would also be... Right. You know... And the sheep, sheep getting shorn to, to make the wool. And, I mean, a good example of this, in 1863, the uh, uh, Crenshaw Woolen Mill, which was in the middle of the Tredegar Ironworks, burned down. Right. Jeez, you know, that, that's not, you don't just go, oh, interesting, a little fire. No, that's the one of the largest woolen mills in the South. Right. Burned down. And when it did, it took out a lot of the, the Tredegar Ironworks as well. Uh, so, you know, quantifying the effect which this had is often a challenge, you know, because nobody's giving us data about this. But you can't imagine that this did not have a have a ripple effect. What about your clothes? How did, how did you get a new suit? What did the Confederate soldiers get? Right. What did the what did the what did the men wear in the in the winter of sixty three sixty four with 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 that increased need from other mills to to fill the void? I don't know. Sure, but you, you've got to just look at it and be able to say, okay, well, there's a cause, and there's definitely going to be an effect. And there's, uh, I mean, whenever there's hard times, there's people that get rich off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I mean, and how are they doing that in the city? I mean, well, the, the papers are filled with. Very negative and, and certainly, if not overtly racist, uh, veiled condemnations of speculators, which they invariably described as Jewish stereotypes. And you see that a lot. The speculators are getting rich while they're, in other words, people would come in and buy up tons and tons of salt or coffee or sugar, and hold on to it until the demand brought the price right on up, and then they would begin to sell it. And no doubt stuff like that was going on. Right. And whether that carried with it a, a racial overtones, I, I don't know. There's there's not, no, no data to say, really. I suppose we could go back and, and start figuring out who the, the marketeers were, but how can you prove who, who was buying this stuff? Sure. Um, I can't tell you in 1862, the brilliant solution to the uh, runaway inflation and speculation was uh, essentially price controls, uh, which would have made Karl Marx very proud, uh, but it didn't work. It fell on its face. The, the military authorities set prices and said, you know, here's here's what you can charge and nothing more. Sure. For which would have made Adam Smith happy. Would have made right, Adam right. Smith happy, <laughs> too, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the idea was to control speculation and, and runaway inflation. But it had the opposite effect, which was to say, you know, the, the farmers didn't want to bring stuff in if they could, if they knew that we could only make X amount of dollars. They wanted, yeah. to, and so, since these rules applied only to the city of Richmond itself, uh, apparently there are all these little black markets going on, you know, in the western suburbs. As you know, the farmers would come in, somebody would meet them, and before they got to Richmond, and say, you know, hey, I'll give you X amount of dollars if you'll just, you know, turn your wagon load over to me, and, and off he went. So, you know, all this stuff is going on, everything you can imagine. Sure, speculation, profiteering, absolutely. On the other hand, did anybody walk out of the Civil War in Richmond loaded? I don't see how that's possible since the Confederate 
States of America didn't have much specie. It's not like guys were walking out with buckets full of gold. Right. Uh, if you got paid, you got paid in Confederate bonds or Confederate currency, which by the end of the war was probably best used as toilet paper. Right. You know, what does that what does that leave you with at the end of the war? Even even tangible capital that you might have invested in prior to the war, like slaves, is now valueless. Right. Confederate bonds. Valueless. And I guess so, even like the cotton and tobacco probably would have majority of that would have also burned. Well, the ones that were the, that which was in the warehouses here, you know, as we know, was deliberately destroyed sure. by the Confederates on their way out. But that's millions of dollars. Yeah, millions and millions of dollars. And so, is gone. so you mentioned the West End of the city. Like, where does I, I mean, I don't, I mean, know how we just describe it properly, but I mean, like, where where are the city limits at that point? Um, roughly the city limits, roughly where Belvedere is today, uh, would be sort of the western limit. Okay. And um, to the east, roughly where um, Bloody Run is, just just there between Churchill and Chimborazo. And uh, the northern boundary is a little bit more spongy in my mind. But, uh, of course, the river was the, the southern sure. boundary. But, I mean, think about it. you got what's now Broad Street, you know, it was the major conduit for, you know, country traffic mm-hmm. coming in. I, I sort of imagine that out there, you know, probably in the vicinity of, you know, where Staples Mill is now, or probably all kinds of uh, little black markets, and not that they were established places, but, you know, sure. that's probably where a lot of this stuff took place. Right. In that, in that neighborhood. And uh, move it on in. Yeah. And so, this, does the city government have any power? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, one of the great things that was done in the 1960s is a really great effort put on by the Richmond Centennial Commission. They actually formed a uh, historical commission to put on events and do publications for the Centennial. And one of the things that they published was a transcription of the entire city council minutes. Oh, wow. And it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. You know how we were talking about uh, before, when you read the newspapers, you get the sense of just the apparatus of day-to-day life. You know, how did you do this? What what was being sold? You know, how many slaves were running away? This kind of thing. Uh, when you read these minutes, you know, you realize the, the most inane functions of government. You know, we, we're appointing a dog catcher. You know, this, this kind of thing. Uh, we're splitting up the duties of the uh, cemetery keeper who used to be in charge of St. John's Church and Chacoville Cemetery. Well, we're splitting them up now. You know, it's too too much for one man. You know, these, these mundane things that you don't, wow, you know, that, that who cares? You know, we're going to extend this pipe from here to there. You know, Sure. But, yeah, they're functioning, you know, just, just, you know, in this very strange situation. And occasionally you see that really creep in. But all the things that city council was doing before the war are certainly being done during the war, and it's really neat. If you ever get a chance, check it out. Yeah, I mean, it... Fact's right over there. Do, and do they... Um, they butt heads pretty hard with uh, uh, with the Confederate government, or is that... I mean, even the state government? I mean, it, it seems like their agendas are, are pretty different. You would think they would. Um, I don't see that too often. You know, you think about even before the war, you've got the city government coexisting with the uh, the state government, and everybody forgets that you've also got the county government because the the county court mm-hmm. was right downtown at where is it twenty third or twenty second? Yeah, in that 22nd area. Twenty second in Maine. 
you know, so it's three governments before the war, and then you toss on the Confederate government during the war. There's just this enormous apparatus of government uh, here in Richmond. You know, how do they? What are they doing? What, what's their? What's their role? And I always sort of imagine the weirdness of being in the Capitol building when you had the Virginia legislature meeting at the same time you had the Confederate Congress meeting. They were, they were right. two legislative bodies operating at the same time. That's probably unprecedented. Sure. Uh, and I don't know how it worked really. I know it, I know it did work, but you know, butting heads. I don't I don't really see that happening a lot. I mean, it, it does occasionally happen. Um, usually in cases involving crime. Yeah. Whose jurisdiction is this? You know, soldier does something downtown Richmond. Is that is that the the, the cities to deal with, or is it the Confederate governments to deal with? Uh, but by and large, the, the mayor tended to kick back. Uh, soldiers that had done something egregious back to the government, back to the Confederate government, and uh, I think they, they fairly, fairly well got along. I've never seen anything remarkable really happen there. And I wonder if there was even a sense that they would be, you know, if you push too hard on the Confederate government, are you not then a turncoat? Or hmm. I mean, is that? No, uh, that could be. I mean, it certainly be. You know, that the feeling that. Uh, it's all for the it's all for the war effort, you know. Right. Do your part. Uh, you know, one wonders at what point they, they realize we're all in the same lifeboat. Sure. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are certainly issues that that come up. Uh, one that jumps to mind because I was just reading about it <coughs> was the uh, the city almshouse had been turned over to the Confederate government for use as a hospital. Well, in 1864, the the city wanted it back. Now. The city council does not tell us why, but I can only imagine that their their need for a place to put impoverished people or feed them out of was probably much greater. Sure. So they petitioned the Confederate government, and this is their land. This is their almshouse, mm-hmm. and they had to, you know, basically ask them nicely, you know, can we have it back? Uh, you know, today you can certainly imagine a situation where they'd be like, you're you're out, you're done. Yeah. We, need, we need it back. Um, but instead, they asked them very nicely, and the Confederate government considered it and, and gave them back their almshouse. Uh, ironically, for all that effort, within a few months, it had been turned over to the Virginia Military Institute as their barracks. So that went from city to Confederate government to a state organization, the Virginia Military Institute. So you see how there's a sort of intertwining of, of things, even when it's uh, city property. So yeah. Who, who knows? It would be an interesting thing to, to study, though. Huh. Um, and I guess as far as who's getting rich, I guess in that situation, moving companies. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the great things that, that, that has happened since uh, since digitization really took hold is there's this file that's in the National Archives, which is called the Citizen's File. But it's basically the receipts or, or payments to um, businesses and uh, citizens in the Confederacy. It's arranged just by name, which is kind of a nightmare because then you have to go find People from Richmond, you know, your guy from Richmond is next to a guy from you know Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, but still, you go looking for somebody in Richmond, and, and you'll find them in the citizens' file. You can see exactly what the Confederate government paid them. And some of these things, you know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. They must have been paid in bonds and whatnot. But then you realize they got paid all this money, but what did that? <laughs> right. What did that wind up being for them? You know, almost sure. nothing. Uh, unless you unless you turned around and bought real estate with it, which would be the only way to come out of the war. Okay. Uh, unless you did that, you're, 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 that was just money that didn't exist. So a lot of times I'm looking at, geez, this guy got paid, you know, 
fifty thousand dollars. Right. Man, he was you know, he was cleaning up. Well, also consider inflation at the time. Sure. You know, and consider that, you know, the come eighteen sixty five is gonna be absolutely worthless. And you realize, well, it seems like they were just doing what they could to, you know, what will this guy do the job for? Fifty thousand? Right. You know. Who knows? I, I can't really say. But you see a lot of these extraordinarily large payments being made during the war. And is there anyone that came out real estate rich after that? Or I mean, it seems like... I can't think of anybody, really. I never thought about that. I mean, that seems like, you know, it'd be pretty amazing. I mean, you also, downtown especially, you got a clean slate. You can start building things. And uh, Well, people during the war knew what they had. I mean, one of the things, if you ever read some of the wartime diaries... If you had a house or a rooming house or anything that could be turned into a uh, even a room, a spare room, you, you could make money. You could make a lot of money charging rent. Uh, if you read uh, J.B. Jones' uh, Confederate War Clerk's Diary, a Rebel War Clerk's Diary, he goes into this. You know, he's having to constantly move because the the, the landlord uh, is is saying, you know, hey, I've got a guy who wants to pay me twelve hundred dollars for that room. Can you match it? No, I'll well, let you go. Right, you know, so you know, people downtown. You know, I don't see a whole lot of buying of, of real estate, but on the other hand, uh, one of the things in the newspaper is they're constantly you, you see the the auction sales for for land. One wonders if if somebody was saying, "Hey, that's the way to go." Yeah, I've never really seen it, and of course, it's it's difficult to track because all the the, the courthouse records are burned. Uh huh. So there's a question that will probably just go unanswered. We'll never know. I've also never really seen any expanse of building. I mean, like, I know there's you know, mm-hmm. a few things. Seem During to be the war? Yeah, it seems like, you know, with that influx of population, it seems like there'd be, and I, I don't know that there'd be anything probably built that would still remain now. You know, it seems like a lot of that stuff, you know, if you were building it that quickly for demand, might, you know, just degrade quickly. But, hmm. well, obviously the... Uh, the big building efforts that I can think of in Richmond were the, the massive hospitals, mm-hmm. like Chimborazo and Winder and Jackson. Um, I can picture a few churches that were finished up, especially early in the war. Um, that's about it. It doesn't seem like there was any attempt made, you know, oh, geez, we're you know, this is the Confederate capital now. We better you know, build some dedicated buildings. I mean, the simple fact that there was... I mean, at least an apartment building. You know, apartment, how about how about a you know, place to house workers? Yeah. You know, I mean, so guys like Jones don't have to constantly be right. hunting for uh, hunting for apartments, or you know, not even apartments, you know, just a room, a furnished room that you share with three other guys. Um, you just don't see it. Sure. I mean, I know at one point the, the Confederate Congress was fed up with being in the Capitol with the the squeeze there. I mean, even today, you know, it's, it's a tight space in there yeah. for the for the Virginia legislature. Now put a put the Confederate government in there, and this is before the wings were there. And at one point, they they proposed moving the <laughs> moving the, the the Confederate capital to to the Exchange Hotel. So you know that was an old hotel, but right. you know, it really shows you how there was a was a real crunch, and which was like catty corner from the capital. Yeah, it's right down the hill. It's on Fourteenth uh, and Bank. That's it. Thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate your time. I hope everybody enjoyed that. Yes, that was somewhat of an odd out. Um, like I said, I just edited it together. It's just the, the beginning of the Lincoln and Richmond conversation. Uh, it was not about Lincoln and Richmond, so it became the beginning of or the first episode of Civil War Life in Richmond. 
focusing on the civilian life here in the city. Uh, the if this is the first time you've ever heard the podcast, you should definitely go check out all the other episodes at historyreplaystoday.org, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can uh, also you know, definitely support our sponsors, River City Segs and Frame Nation. As well, you know, if you're trying to help keep this podcast free, keep it going, you can donate a million, a hundred, one dollar at historyreplaystoday.org. Not really trying to get rich here, just trying to just trying to keep this thing going and make it a great day.